If you came today and uh, you don't have a Bible handy, that is fine. We have them under the seats all throughout the sanctuary here, and I would encourage you to grab one of them and open it now. I'm going to be preaching from Exodus starting in chapter 13, and I will be reading everything in chapter 13 and 14, and I would encourage you to follow along with me as I read. And as you turn there, uh, if you have one of the blue Bibles, it's page 55, and as you turn there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Some people obsess over this question. And they, they have anxiety and fear because they don't know the answer. And other people actually don't think about it enough. What is God's will? Usually this question comes up with really big decisions. You know, am I, am I marrying the right person? Am I taking the right job? Should I sell my house? Should I buy this house? When should I retire? Where should I retire? And you, you can obsess over big questions like this when the consequences are obvious. And it seems like you don't have the information you need to decide. And people that want to please the Lord are worried they will make a decision that does not please Him. Other people don't suffer from that kind of anxiety. And some of them almost seem like they don't care enough about God's will. And so for both types of people, my hope is that this message will show you the importance of God's will. And also, if you obsess over this question and you are fearful of missing it, my hope is that this message will lay some of those fears to rest, that you will be able to rest in faith. Both extremes, obsession over this question of God's will or perhaps not, not caring enough, are a problem. If you are panicked because you feel like you don't know God's will, it means that you don't understand what God has revealed His will to be in the Bible, and you aren't resting in His goodness. And if you are concerned, or excuse me, if you are not concerned at all with God's will, it means that you don't understand the life of obedience God has called you to. So panic, on the one hand, shows that you don't trust God to give you the information you need, and you're acting as if he doesn't love you. On the other hand, indifference shows that you don't understand that you will one day give account for every careless word you've spoken. You're acting as if God doesn't matter. So there are two possible attitudes. My hope is that in this message, we will come to the word of God and find hope and direction both. Last week, we saw the moment of Israel's redemption in Exodus as God brought the final plague on Egypt. And because of the blood of the Lamb, God spares Israel while punishing Egypt through the death of the firstborn son. And the people of God finally leave Egypt carrying gold and silver and precious treasures given to them by their former slave masters. But the story of Exodus does not end with redemption. We're actually only a third of the way through the book. Now that they have been brought out of Egypt, the children of Israel begin to learn what it means to follow God. They begin to learn to obey Him and to understand His will for each of them. 
For Christians, a lot of people can fondly remember the moment of redemption. The joy of first being saved. I know people that say the sky was brighter, food tasted better, the air was cleaner. Because it's exhilarating to know that the God that made the world loves you and that your sins are forgiven. And I don't want to minimize that at all. But for all people, that feeling does not last. There's not a Christian alive that that has been the experience of faith for their entire lives. And in fact, very often, after God saves you, he tests you. And in our text today, you can see God's great kindness towards his people that he has just redeemed from Egypt. And also his intention that they learn to trust him. And in fact, there's a moment where they are convinced that he is not kind at all because he is teaching them to trust them. So to begin with today, read with me verses 17 through 22 of Exodus chapter 13. And we'll go right through the text. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham in the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So my first point today is the Lord leads his people. The Lord leads his people. One of the ironies of this story, and I think of every Christian, is that very often we feel that we are better off than we actually are. Here in the text today, the people leaving Egypt are described as ready for battle. But God knows that they are not. And so he does not lead them on a path where they will encounter battle initially. They have tasted the joy of deliverance. And in that moment of joy, they have great confidence. But God knows that the temptation to return to Egypt is shockingly strong. And that's why God leads them, rather than in a direct route to the promised land, He leads them a long way around, and in fact, He leads them to a dead end that doesn't even look like it's a way, because He knows that at the first difficulty they encounter, they will forget all of His miracles, and they will immediately want to return to slavery. Think about that for just a second. With the thrill and exhilaration of running out of Egypt carrying gold that was given to you by a former taskmaster, tasting freedom after centuries of bondage, it's hard to imagine that anyone would want to go back to Egypt. This dormant temptation 
is just below the surface of every Israelite. And God in his kindness leads them so that for a time they avoid the battle that they think they are ready for. And God goes with them as he leads them. You can see this in verses 20 to 22. It says, As they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. As surely as God was in control of Egypt, he is in control as he leads his people. And his intention and plan is not to spare them from all conflict, but he controls exactly when and exactly where they experience it by showing them step by step exactly where to go. And he does not give his redeemed people the opportunity to return to Egypt. He remains with them. And notice it says, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And I think it's important to recognize you can't look at a cloud or a pillar of fire and know where you're supposed to go two days from now. As, as exciting as it was to have a visible sign of God's presence with them, they had no idea what the future held for them. And I think when we read texts like this, sometimes it's easy to look back with sort of rose-colored glasses and say, oh, it would have been so nice. All you had to do was just go where the cloud went. That's so simple. That's perfect. That's what I want. But the reality is, God has given us signs of his presence here and now for us as believers, and we, just like they, still struggle with the same sort of unbelief right below the surface. We, as people redeemed through the precious blood of Christ have similar temptations and promises. It is very easy for Christians who are freed from their old lives of sin to fall back into sins of pride and self-sufficiency, or if you are not a person that seems to have it all together on the outside, it's easy to fall into sins of despair and fear. It's easy when you know the work that God has called you to, to become tired and weary in well-doing so that you feel like giving up because you forget that God is actually with you. But we as New Testament Christians have the assurance of Jesus in the words of Christ that he is with us as we seek to follow God. Just as God guides his people out of Egypt, so he guides us. And I think it's important to recognize that God does not give anyone a roadmap that forecasts the next 40, 50 years. Just as his presence guided them step by step of the way, his intention is that we would experience his presence moment by moment and trust him, not knowing necessarily what tomorrow or next week or next year brings, but instead learning to fellowship with him moment by moment, day by day, trusting that he will tell us exactly what we need to know when we need to know it. He didn't tell Moses the time and place of every battle that the children of Israel experienced. Moses, I think, woke up most days with no idea what God had in store for them. 
And I think that's normal. But God was with them and he is with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, I am with you always. And he has assured us of God's incredible affection. You read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. There are some incredible promises, incredible statements that the Father has the hairs on our heads numbered. That's the level of detail that he knows in each of our lives. But that doesn't mean that the way is always easy. The point of the Christian life is restored fellowship with God. But when we're brought into that fellowship, we are immature and need to grow. God's intention is not to fill heaven with a bunch of immature, whining babies that cry for all of eternity. His intention is to make us like his son, mature, godly believers who reflect the glory of the Father the same way that Jesus Christ reflects his glory. Which means, after he redeems us, he will do whatever is necessary for us to forsake our idols and sins and to pursue him with our whole hearts. He will lead us from a faltering, weak faith to a faith that is strong because we know that we can trust him. Just as he has saved us, so he will lead us. And that's what he does with Israel. He leads them to another place where they absolutely must depend on him completely because there is no way out. Exodus begins in that exact situation where they cry out to God. And just after their redemption, God leads them to another place where they have to cry out to God. And look with me at my second point today. Pharaoh attacks God's people. Pharaoh attacks God's people. Let's read together verses 1 through 18 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. And you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with the officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pihahiroth and by the, in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Notice in these verses, God is completely in control of the situation. This is not a sneak attack. He's not surprised that suddenly his people are facing opposition. Just like he was in control when the people were crying out in slavery in the beginning of the book, when he called Moses, when Moses went in answer to the call and told Pharaoh, let my people go, and instead of obeying, Pharaoh increased their burdens and the people cried out saying, this is even worse than before we had a deliverer. God is still completely in control. And like a master chess player, he declares exactly what his opponent's moves will be before they even make them. And God deliberately led his people to a place where Pharaoh would attack them. Does that sound like the redemption that we hope for in Christ? I don't think it does. I think we have a picture of redemption that expects a good, comfortable, anxiety-free life until we go home to heaven, which is a fantastic party for all of eternity. I think heaven will be great. Just think the process that we're in right now has never been guaranteed to be great. And the truth is, God deliberately puts his people in a place where they are filled with fear. Well, why? The text actually tells us twice. He's not done showing his glory. He is not done showing who he is. And notice, we've already read one of them. We'll read the second one in just a minute. God says in verse 4 of chapter 14, I will get glory over Pharaoh, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And just like we saw in each of the plagues, where God shows his power and his strength over Egypt and how he is the one true God in spite of all the idols that they serve, in spite of their national strength and pride, he is still showing for unbelievers his incredible strength and his incredible power and who he really is. And at the same time, all of his people who believe in him, who are trusting in him, who are resting in him, all of those people in the exact same set of events, in the exact same circumstance, see the exact same power. And for those who don't believe, this is judgment. And for those who do believe, this is incredible assurance. God gets glory by displaying his power. And this moment of danger, this moment of fear, gives his people an opportunity to clearly see his power. And I used to think glory is one of those words that's so hard to define. I used to think when I was little, you know, you think of like bright light, like you see at Christmas time with the angels, you think of like high-pitched voices going, Glory is actually just something that shows value. It shows worth. The Hebrew word, and you you all know, I don't really know Hebrew, so I phoned in a friend. The Hebrew word here just means something that's heavy or something of great weight. Something of substance. And here, the Egyptians don't see God on display. He's not appearing to them in thunder and smoke the way he appears to the Hebrews on Mount Sinai when he gives the law. He's not having a, a moment of revelation like he gives to Isaiah where they see his glory in heaven and they understand who he is. For the Egyptians, this glory is seen in awesome, incredible, terrifying power. 
God is glorified because His power is on display. And it's so obvious that no one can deny that God is Lord over Pharaoh. His power is so great that He says exactly what will happen before it takes place. And He uses Pharaoh attacking His people to demonstrate one more time who He is. So in that context... What are the Israelites left to do? What are you supposed to do when you're in a circumstance where God has led you to a place where there's no way out and you don't understand what you should do? I'll say more about this in a minute, but for now, notice what he says to the Israelites. He says, fear not, stand firm, and see. He's saying, don't doubt that I have actually delivered you and led you to where you are. Don't be afraid. Stand firm and watch. There are times when God calls on his people to fight and to do things. And I'll say a little bit about that at the end of the message. This is not, this is not a one-fits-all strategy for what to do when you're in a tight spot. It doesn't mean sit on your hands and don't do anything. This is a reminder that we need to rest in God. And that is true for all people at all times. Sometimes that rest means that you need to obey something he has told you to do. And you rest in God by believing in him and trusting that his command is good for you. And so you do it. But in this specific instance, it literally meant stand still. I will deliver you. Very often, our biggest struggle is to rest in God. So it's fitting that the first spiritual struggle God's redeemed people have as he leads them out of Egypt is for them to rest in him. They are genuinely terrified. They assume that they will be totally destroyed. One commentator I read said, this is the moment in history when Jewish comedy was born. You can see the sarcasm dripping from what they say to Moses. Is it because that there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you led us out here to die? But honestly, can we actually really blame them or act as if we're any better? It's true that they had seen God act in the Exodus. But in this moment, Pharaoh's army is far more visible. And very often, we also look at our problems rather than our God. But fortunately, for Israel and for us, our safety does not depend on us. It depends on God. And God here lovingly protects his people. So my third point for today is the Lord protects his people. Read with me verses 15 through 30 of chapter 14. And the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. I'm going to pause right there. This is one of those things that I think is so hard. If you really believe the Bible is true, this is an incredible moment in history. God says to Moses, Moses, this is really obvious. Just walk through where the ocean is. This is not obvious to anyone but God. But the point is, God's power is so great that deliverance is always possible. 
And we as Christians are literally people who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. If God did that, are any of our problems too big for him? So God says, why do you cry out to me? Just go forward. And he gives him instruction. Continue with me in verse 16. He says, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it was lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of the fire and of the cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us free from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians." And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. The most obvious way that God protects his people here is by working a series of incredible miracles. He separates the Egyptians from the Hebrews so the Egyptians are unable to help them. He makes a path through the middle of the sea so that Israel can walk on dry ground. He also prevents the advance of the Egyptian army by stopping their chariots. He commands the wind. But the miraculous things that God does is not the only thing that we see happen here. Just like everything else in Exodus, notice that God chooses to work through his servant Moses And now, God establishes Moses as his prophet for the people of Israel as they continue to face this last battle with Egypt. And God gives Moses instructions now, just like he did in Egypt. But now, the entire nation of Israel is watching. And the whole nation sees Moses act in obedience to the Lord And they all see God work this miracle through Moses. And part of what I want to say today, I began this message talking about God's will. What should you do? Is there a right answer for these major questions? The Bible is not written to tell you who to marry or where to work or what to do. 
But God does tell his people they need to be part of the church that he has established. And as God works his deliverance for his people here, he works that deliverance in a way that establishes leadership in Israel. And now, human leaders in the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the biblical days and today, are deeply flawed. And so God doesn't set up his leaders as little dictators. Good leadership always models obedience to the Lord. And so Moses is established as a prophet of God who speaks for God and does what God instructs him to do exactly. And to the extent that he obeys, he is an amazing prophet and an amazing leader. And to the extent that he disobeys, he lets us know that this whole thing is way bigger than the people of God in the Old Testament and the leadership that we can see, and the church that God establishes in the New Testament and the frail human leadership that we can see. In actuality, God is the one who leads his people. I believe that this pattern holds today, that the way God delivers his people is not just through the miraculous intervention in their lives, but through the establishment of his leadership in the Old Testament. And we'll actually see evidence of this in two weeks. We're going to see how Moses actually appoints elders underneath him, and that the children of Israel, as God's people, are mentored and discipled through a series of leadership, and that's exactly what Jesus does in the church today. So you want to know what God's will for your life is? I can tell you right now, part of it is that you be deeply connected to an individual church where God has established positions of leader and authorities within the church. Are you in the midst of a crisis? Are you leaning on people who are in the church right now? And will you follow their advice? It's not that the leader is important. The leader should point you to the word of God. And to the degree that we are faithful to the word of God, we can be helpful in that. And I'll say just a little bit more about this in just a second. The reality is, I want to be super careful here. Because I'm the pastor. And I do not want to claim any sort of crazy prophetic authority. It's not my job. I'm not a prophet. The reality is, God has established his leadership in the church in a couple of ways. He does appoint some people to be pastors. He appoints others to be deacons. He appoints people to positions of leadership and authority. But there are also leadership positions that are not necessarily elected by the congregation. And I want to say this particularly as a young pastor. This is really critical. I, I don't want to say, I have the job, so I am the leader. That's actually not always true. My job is to faithfully teach and preach the scriptures, to disciple, to equip, to build up, to pray. But that does not mean that I am the sole leader of the church. That's never the biblical model. The reality is, there are a number of people in our church some of them in their 80s, who have known the Lord literally for 60, 70 years. If you've known the Lord 60 years, that's almost twice as long as I've been alive. Which means that in a deep, personal, experiential way, they know God better than I do. Even if I know the scriptures very well, they've just been with him longer. And so as I talk about God establishing leadership within the church... 
part of what I mean is that the saints who have known the Lord for a long time should be leading within the church. So that if you are a younger Christian, you don't have to just come to me. In fact, I might not be as helpful as someone else would be. The reality is, God has established throughout the church leadership that should help you guide and direct you in whatever crisis you face. That's what he does for his people here in putting Moses in a position where it's obvious that he is the one who speaks for God. And you can actually see that in my final point for today. The people respond. So you see the response that they have. They've witnessed God leading them. They understand very clearly that God put them in a dangerous place. They respond in fear. God in his kindness rescues them in the midst of that fear. And as he rescues them, he establishes Moses as his leader within their people. And you can see their response. I'm just going to read verse 31 for now. It says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So that's directed towards God. They have great confidence in him. But notice this. So that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. They recognize God is the one who has rescued them. And now they recognize God is leading through Moses. And so they begin to depend on that leadership. Now, they, they throughout this book and really the next couple of books in the Old Testament are not good people and neither am I and neither are you. They struggle to follow the leadership and the leadership is not always good. It's easy for people to be critical of church leadership because we're not very good at what we do. That's always been the case. That actually does not change what God is doing in the church in establishing his people through Jesus Christ. And I want to mention, as the people respond, fear in the chapters that we've read this morning is mentioned three times throughout our text. First, they fear Moses and his army. That's the thing that causes them fear, in spite of the fact that they've been redeemed and they've seen incredible miracles. When they see Pharaoh's army, they fear greatly. That's chapter 14, verse 10. Then God tells them, while they're looking at Pharaoh's army, do not be afraid. And when they see the miracle that God works, and they see how God works through Moses, finally it says in the verse we just read, so the people feared the Lord. They began to trust him. They began to recognize he is more powerful than the things that have filled them with fear in the past. And they began to understand that they need to obey him. They now believe in his servant Moses. And I want to encourage you. If you are in a place where you are frightened. You should rely on some people within the church. And if you come talk to me, there's a good chance I might send you to someone else who has a better opportunity to speak into your life. It's one of the disadvantages of being a young pastor and at the same time kind of an advantage. Because I can say, you know what? There are saints, there are Christians who know and love the Lord who can help you more than I can. And I can point you to them. And I want to encourage you today to grow in this fellowship and to grow in trusting in the leaders that God has given us in our church. Some of them are serving in elected positions. Some of them are not. The election, in one sense, almost doesn't matter. If you know and love the Lord, you should be leading in the church. And if you are in a place of fear, you should lean on the leadership that God has established. 
When God leads you to a frightening place, I believe he says to you, just like he says to Israel, fear not, stand firm, watch. And when God has delivered you, you need to recognize what he's done. You need to fear the Lord and you need to believe in his word and recognize that he has established his people in the church. And we need to be within that plan. And finally, the last thing that the people do is they praise the Lord in song. And I want to read the first part of chapter 15 together and notice the way that they celebrate is through music. So chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, and this is, I think, kind of like their national anthem, where they recognize what God has done for them. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots, Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up and the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretch out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The people have heard they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I gave you one tip today. If you, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, I've said part of his will, if you are a Christian, is that you be part of the church. That's real clear. The other thing I want to mention is that I believe singing needs to be part of your regular life, particularly in moments of fear, so that you can look back and see what God has done. And so when I say singing, I don't mean just any song. I would encourage you, 
study this song. Recognize the things that they include in it. Things like, your steadfast love led your people. Where did it lead them? It led them when they had their back against the sea and nowhere out. That was God's steadfast love. He put them in that place. And they recognize on the other side that it was his love that caused them to fear. You know, there's, there's a hymn that has a line very similar to that. Your grace has taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. Those are the kinds of songs that you need so that when you're on a hospital bed someday, you might not have your phone to be able to play some music. You might be getting a CAT scan. You might be in a place where you can't do anything. But you know what you can do? If you have a song that reminds you of what God has done for you, you can sing. When you're comforting your children or your grandchildren in the middle of the night, it's probably a really bad idea to take your phone in there and distract them. What you need to do is sing. And sing songs that commemorate the redemption that God has given you. And I believe there's glory all over this text. And the battle to worship God is won or lost depending on seeing God's glory. Seeing God's glory, which is always present, is key to praising Him. Glory is one of the most important words in the Bible. And the Bible describes his glory in different ways, in different contexts. It's all over this psalm. I listened to a sermon yesterday by a guy named Thabiti Anyawile on Psalm 19. That psalm starts out, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's a fantastic message. I'm going to link to it later this week in an email. He talks about glory. The heavens are constantly saying God is glorious. And if you've ever been impressed by a starry sky or a beautiful sunset or a sunrise, you can understand God is an all-powerful artist. He made the sun that burns in all its splendor. He is great. He is massive. He is huge. He loves beauty. And you can see that in creation. But that's not what you see in his glory in Exodus chapter 14. You know what his glory is there? His glory is of a victorious general who is just completely destroyed the enemy. Do you ever worry about your life? I I think if you're human, you do. This passage says you don't need to. Your God has defeated your greatest enemy. Jesus has conquered death. And the Bible says that if God did not spare his own son for us, that he will not fail to give us every good thing. There is glory in the empty tomb, just as there's glory in the stable in Bethlehem. The key is, can you see it when you're in a place of fear? I think the important thing to understand here is God, like a loving parent, knows that sometimes the thing you need, the thing that's good, the thing that he wants to give you, is a situation that will terrify you so that you learn to trust him. And I want to encourage you today as I close this message. There are really two applications here. I think, first of all, it's very easy to be a nominal attender in a church and to not know people and to not know some of the great leaders that we have. I want to encourage you, if that's you, you need to spend some time with some people. And I can give you a list of names that if I gave you that list right now, I think they'd be really upset with me. But I can give that to you later. If you want to connect with some people here at the church, I want to encourage you, come talk to me. 
I can't do that for all of you, and I shouldn't. God has given our church a number of great leaders, and I want to help establish them. The second thing, and this is something that everyone can take with them today, would you be willing to memorize a song so that you can praise God for your salvation? Maybe it's a, maybe it's a song like Amazing Grace. If you know the first verse, learn the rest of them and sing it with your kids. Sing it in moments where you're honestly really afraid. <laughs> I'm actually, uh, Lauren and I, I, I didn't share this in first service. Uh, Lauren and I had a moment when we were expecting Rosie where uh, we really thought that we were losing the baby. And we went in for what we thought was a pretty routine checkup where we were going to fix this small problem. And uh, we wound up in ER. And ER doctors are really great at giving you the worst case scenario and telling you this is definitely what you're experiencing. And we were both in a place of just absolute fear. And I'll never forget, I actually can't tell you what song we sang. I don't even remember. But I'll never forget singing in an ER room with a little curtain around us. And getting those words out, I remember it, it was like having a 100-pound weight on my chest. It was a battle just to be able to sing anything. But in that moment, I think that we embodied what a husband and wife should be for each other in Christ. Where we encouraged each other with the faith, with a song. And so... Maybe it's Amazing Grace. Maybe it's a song we've recently been getting to know, a song like He Will Hold Me Fast. Those are the songs that have the gospel in them, that show you, yes, I'm a sinner, but you know what? God loves me anyway. That show you that that grace will one day lead you home. It gives you your future hope. Another one of my favorites that we've been working with the youth group is a song called His Mercy is More. And it reminds you, That although my sins are many, his mercy is greater than my sin. And so I want to encourage you, pick your own song. It doesn't really matter. But make it a song that loves the gospel and learn it and sing it. And I want to close with, with, this is from an old hymn called How Firm a Foundation that actually talks a lot about how God leads us. And it's very honest about some of the fear that we experience. And it has a fantastic verse that goes like this. When through the deep waters I cause thee to go, saying that God does deliberately send you through those places, the river of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy trouble to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. That last line is just incredible. Because it means sanctify. It means set apart to make holy. It means that God deliberately uses your deepest distress in his loving plan for you. It means that those moments are gifts from him in his kindness. And I want to encourage you to trust him and to see his glory and to worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven. God, we would love to see more of your glory. We pray that we would see it in our church. That we would see it in the saints who have known you for decades. That we would see it in new believers who have just come to know you for the first time. Lord, I ask that you would sing.
I pray that you would help us to praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Like that.